Welcome to the New Day Community Church Sermon Podcast. We hope you are encouraged by this message from the Nichols Road Campus. For more info, look us up at newdaycommunity.org. Thank you. Good morning. Welcome back, Pastor Cameron. Glad to have you back up here to preach this morning. <laughs> and this is going to be fun. Um, in January, many of you submitted questions for this series that's called Got Questions. Thank you for doing so. The questions were terrific, and we've selected some to respond to today. Um, we've actually gathered them into three categories of questions. So this week is about beliefs. Next week is about Christian living. And the third week will be uh, gender and sexuality. So those are kind of the three categories um, that are coming at you the next three weeks. Uh, this morning, Pastor Cameron and I will respond to questions. And then next week, more of the preaching team will get involved and it's going to be fun. Um, we're going to go back and forth a little bit. So are you excited about it? Yeah. I am. It's going to be great. Okay. So uh, before we take the first question, let's sort of get grounded on belief stuff. Sound good? At New Day, we believe in one almighty creator, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This might sound a little like the Nicene Creed that we read when we take communion. Uh, we believe Jesus is the Son. He became a man and died for us. That those who believe in him and make him Lord, he, his death actually uh, cancels the debt of our sins. In him alone, we have forgiveness, redemption, and eternal life. We believe he rose from the dead and he will return to consummate his kingdom. We believe the Holy Spirit fills, empowers, and anoints believers, that he guides and teaches us, that he equips us for the work of ministry in the church and to share the good news with the whole world. We embrace the gifts of the Holy Spirit as described in the New Testament. And the works of Jesus and the Holy Spirit are the exact plan of the Father. So there's, um, we don't believe the Bible portrays an angry father, but a forgiving son. Sometimes people think that way, and that's not what the Bible portrays. The father introduces himself to Moses. Really, it's always all three, <laughs> Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. They work together. They're in unity. But he introduces himself as gracious, compassionate, slow to anger, abounding in loving kindness and truth. And he's completely just as well. So is the Son, so is the Spirit, so is the Father. All three are in harmony all the time. At New Day, we believe in two ordinances, water baptism and the Lord's Supper, which is also called communion. These are not how someone is saved, but they are an expression of the saving work that's happened in someone's life through Jesus Christ. We embrace and believe in the 66 books of the Bible. They're inspired, the authoritative word of God. That book, the Bible, is the standard. We believe God speaks to his people, that you can hear his voice. He says, Jesus said, my sheep hear my voice. But we also recognize we're imperfect people, that we know in part and we prophesy in part. So we submit everything we feel the Lord is saying to us to the scripture, to the word of God to wise counsel, those who can help us apply what we've heard to our lives properly. So far, so good? <laughs> Great. A few words about how to approach doctrine and the interpretation of Scripture, all right? And then we'll get to the questions, I promise. Um, first, 
Scripture will not fit in a man-made box. I need that clicker, Marilee, that's next to me. Scripture will not fit in a man-made box. We humans are always trying to boil it down into something systematic or something with acronyms or alliteration, aren't we? And that's great to the degree that it helps us understand the Scripture, um, but making Scripture understandable or systematic should never take priority over letting Scripture speak for itself. Does that make sense? If there's a system or a set of words with alliteration or an acronym that help you understand Scripture, that's good. But that thing never takes priority over Scripture itself. We have to let it speak for itself. Next, it's so important that we approach Scripture with humility. Humility recognizes, I still have room to grow in understanding God and His Word. Um, Charles Spurgeon is a really great example of this. He was called the Prince of Preachers. He lived in the mid to late 1800s in England. Um, He's a well-respected pastor and preacher. And uh, he grew and adapted over the years. I'm going to show you how. Early in his life, he jumped into this uh, doctrinal battle between Arminian theology and Calvinist. I'm not going to describe what those are or go into it, but they have different views about how God saves and, and some different doctrines. And they're opposed to each other, those, uh, those two systems of belief. And uh, at the beginning of his ministry, Spurgeon was vehemently opposed uh, to Arminian theology. Later in his life, he actually embraced a combination of the two. Um, and so here, here's one of his quotes. At age 24, he said, I do not serve the lowercase g God of the Arminians at all. I have nothing to do with him. So he basically says, they're heretics. (laughs) Don't listen to those guys. But 23 years later, at age 47, he said this, I've been called an Arminian Calvinist or a Calvinistic Arminian, and I am quite content so long as I can keep close to my Bible. Now that is so good. What he is an example for us is that he landed somewhere between two polarized doctrinal camps. Anybody run into any polarization in their life lately? (laughs) But he was able to actually grow and change his stance and his understanding of Scripture because of two things, his high value for biblical truth and his humility. He wasn't too worried about what people would think about him for changing his understanding of Scripture or what this camp or that camp would say. He said, this is what the Bible says, and that's what I care about the most. So here we go. And uh, that's my heart and the heart of our approach to doctrine at New Day. We believe the entire Bible with all our heart, the whole thing. We interpret it and apply it to our lives as faithfully as we know how. And we're humble enough to recognize that our most faithful at this moment in time may be a little different than it is in 5, 10, 15, or 20 years. We're committed to admit if we realize we are wrong and course correct and then move forward, no matter our age, we're always learning and growing in our understanding of scripture, no matter our age. So that's an ongoing continuous process worked out in community. Growing in your understanding of scripture. It's an ongoing continuous process 
worked out in community. That means this family of believers here is a tool the Lord uses to help us come to understand his word better and how to apply it to being the family of God and being individuals who live in this world. Okay, so that's my intro and the foundation for the questions. Are you ready for some questions? Yes. All right. Pastor Cameron, you're first. All right. Well, the first one is, how could a loving God send good people to hell? And this is one of the most commonly asked questions. And uh, questions are not neutral. Questions come with presumptions and assumptions. All right. And there's two primary presumptions or assumptions in this question that I just want to call attention to. First of all, there are no good people. (laughs) Full stop. All right. Even Jesus, the only one who could claim to be good, he was God in the flesh, had committed no sin. When a man came to him and said, good teacher, he said, whoa, 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 whoa. why do you call me good? He's, he challenged him. He said, that is, don't, don't, dare, don't you dare call me good. There's only one good, and that's the Father. And so there are no good people. Um, <clears throat> and our evaluation of someone's level of goodness is really a comparison based on our own uh, you know, uh, process of evaluation. And we, being evil don't have the right to make a judgment whether someone is good or not. And so the whole idea that there are good people that God lets go to hell is, is wrong. The second misconception is that God sends anyone to hell. God does not send anyone to hell. That is contradictory to the message of the entirety of Scripture. Okay? Every human is already on the path to hell. Okay? The whole whole of mankind is (laughs) hell-bent on destruction. All right? we We are going in that direction. And I could talk about the many reasons or examples, but I don't have time to do that. It's as if the whole human race were on a boat that because of their own choices, the boat sank. And now the people that were on that boat are in this this ocean far, far away from any help. And some may be able to stay afloat because they're they're strong. they They know how to float in the water. But they can only do that for so long. And others may be clinging to remnants of the boat, thinking that that will save them. But the reality is, every man, woman, and child on planet Earth is doomed. God, out of his compassion, sent his son, one who could walk on water, to bring salvation to those who are already drowning in sin, drowning in wickedness, drowning in the worldly system that we're born into. And so it is God who offers salvation. But you know, if someone's in the water 
drowning and they refuse the help that God sends, it is not the rescuer that's at fault. Jesus is able to save anyone who simply receives his salvation, his offer. And he has done everything to make that offer to each and every person. We have to trust God in his infinite uh, uh, ability. See, God is infinitely more just, wise, and merciful than any man, any woman, any person. And we have to trust that God is going to reach. I believe that God does everything in his power to, to reach out to, to every man, woman, and child. And so even those who we say well, have never heard the gospel or those too young to co- uh, comprehend it, what about them? <clears throat> well, I have actually met several people. In fact, just a couple of years ago in Turkey, I met a man uh, in a Muslim nation where evangelism is strictly prohibited <clears throat> Uh, who uh, encountered Jesus supernaturally and became a Christian. I met another man about uh, 10 or 15 years ago uh, in another uh, Muslim country who had never, ever seen a Bible or or talked to a Christian. Jesus supernaturally appeared to him. And and through that, he became a Christian, not only a Christian, but a a minister. And so God can reach those. It's really, the question is, really uh, is judging God, is he genuinely just? Is he wise enough? Is he good enough? And the answer is that he is, all right? The real question that we need to ask is that do we believe? So in other words, don't ask, what about those people? What about those people? Well, what about you? Because you've heard the gospel. Have you accepted Jesus's uh, plan of salvation the, the life raft that he's, he's sent out to, to rescue you? And are you doing everything in your power to reach those around you that are drowning? All right, that's the real question. So how can, God send, how can a loving God send good people to hell? The loving God did everything in his power to rescue anyone who will give him even a moment of their time to rescue them from hell, to rescue them from sin and the consequences of sin, and to enable them to live free uh, and with him forever. Oh, I I get the next one too, which goes right along with it. How can a loving God let bad things happen to good people? You know, why is there evil? Well, assumption number one, (laughs) there are no good people. And you think, well, what about all the babies that die? And again, that's a good question. The fact is, is that if they would grow up, they would make choices that would reveal the evil in their heart. Okay? Um, every man and woman, if you, if you ask them, there's been actually studies of this, of, of, of millions of people asking, do you live by your own code of ethics? Do you violate, just, let's just get you rid of the Ten Commandments and all these other religious rules. Are you able to maintain your own values? 
And every, every man, every woman, every person, if they're honest, they'll say, no, I can't even keep my own rules. And that reveals that we're broken. Humanity is broken. And so we're not even good based on ourselves. But the real issue here is God is not Superman and you don't want him to be. Why does God let good, bad things happen to good people? And I, my, my response to why it says vice versa is like, why does God let good things, why does God let good things happen to bad people? Why does God let bad things happen to good people? It's the same question. All right? There are some really bad people. I know a few. They have really nice cars <laughs> and big houses. Actually, a whole bunch of the Bible, the Psalms especially, you know, why? Why do these wicked people prosper? And I, who try to serve you, suffer. There's a reason. It's to get us to think deeper. <clears throat> Superman is a cartoon simplification of a very of a human condition, and we want God just to swoop in and rescue us it, it, just, in the, or, uh, just in the right time so that we don't suffer something really bad. But that is not reality, and it's not healthy. And if God did that, we would end up with a planetary um, condition of codependency that would be worse than sin itself. Did you hear me? It would establish a codependent relationship between God and people that would end up making us even more corrupt. If you don't know what a codependent relationship, ask someone that's lived with an addict. Okay? It's extremely, extremely destructive. Uh, What's on trial here is the justice of God. Are we willing to genuinely assume that we have the qualifications to judge the one who created justice? Do we have the qualifications to judge the one who created mercy? <laughs> okay. See, God created all things visible and visible. And the invisible things are things like gravity, but they're also the things like love and truth and justice and mercy. Or in an ultimate act of cancel culture, do we just say he doesn't exist because he doesn't meet my qualifications? Do you see what happens when someone says that? When we say that, we take a seat on the throne and say, I am my own God. Every thought and every act has consequences. And that is essential to life. It's essential that we learn that. And if God took us out of that system, we would never mature. All maturity happens by enduring hardship. All right? And thank God for good times. But it's in the difficult times that we grow, that we become mature. Jesus clearly said that random disasters that happen he referenced a few people that died when a tower fell. He says those were not more, more sinners than others. You know? And so we don't look at random disasters, terrible things, the earthquake that has killed tens of thousands in Turkey, in Syria. It's not because they were more evil than us. All right? A car accident. Those are not, those are, those are 
just part of living in a broken world. And the truth is, is that the end is not death. It is appointed for all people, the Bible says, to die. And then judgment. Okay, not then hell or heaven, then judgment. And so we must trust the wisdom, the justice, and the mercy of God in those cases. Because, listen, this is just, we're all seedlings, right? Just barely sprouting. And God knows how to grow. And so when, when a person dies tragically be, before their time, or seemingly before their time, they're delivered into the hand of God, and He is more just. He loves them infinitely more than you could ever. All right? And He will do everything in His power so that they could, they could not end up living it with the consequences of their own sin and the sins of others. Does this make sense? All right? Consequences are important. God does not remove the consequences always because it's through those that we learn truth. We grow spiritually and we become more mature. Amen. Yeah. Okay. This is great, isn't it? (laughs) Next question is, how is the Bible a reliable source of truth when most of its statements are poetic metaphors? I love this question. And uh, it brings up lots of other questions like, what do we mean by truth? What does the Bible mean when it says truth? And what type of book do we think the Bible is? So I got to talk about those a little bit in order to answer this question. Do you subtly, subtle, subtly, subtlety, subtly expect the Bible to function as a rule book for your life? Do you expect it to function as a science textbook, a chronological history of the world. Um, If you come to the Bible with rigid demands and expectations, it sets you up to be frustrated. So let's take an example. If I expect it to be a rule book for life, I might get really frustrated with some parts of the Bible. I might love the Proverbs because they kind of work that way, don't they? But the Psalms of Lament will drive me nuts, right? I'm going to be like, David, stop crying about your enemies all the time and how your life's so bad and tell me what to do with my life. This is supposed to be a rule book, right? There can be some frustration there based on my expectation. But if we were to accept the Bible on its own terms and those Psalms of Lament, um, we would find that those are actually showing us what to do when life breaks our heart when it seems unfair, when we've prayed and asked God to intervene, but he hasn't done it yet. These psalms show us to bring our thoughts and our feelings and even our despair to the Lord. Take them to the Lord in prayer. Write songs about them. And take hope even in the waiting for him to answer. So that's one example of letting the Bible speak on its own terms rather than bringing a demand to it. So at New Day, like I said, we consider the Bible inspired by God, authoritative. We believe it's accessible to everyone and yet so deeply rich in meaning meaning that the smartest of us could never fully understand it. 
So we approach it boldly and humbly at the same time. We interpret its meaning faithfully and apply it consistently the best that we can. We recognize it as a compiled collection of many different literary styles, genres, and each type of writing in the Bible is valuable in communicating something from God to us. It's something he wants to say to his people. You know, God spent thousands of years putting that book together for us and preserving it against great uh, opposition. (laughs) It has truth to reveal to us in the pages of the book. Okay, so that's a little bit about how to come to the Bible. Next, what is truth? Another one of our corollary questions there, right? Jesus said this in John 18, 37. For this purpose, I was born. For this purpose, I have come into the world. Why Jesus come? To bear witness to the truth, is what he says. He came to reveal truth. And guess what? God is truth. When God reveals himself to Moses, I mentioned it earlier. What does he say about himself on Mount Sinai? He says, I am the Lord. The Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and truth. That's one of the core identity of God is truth. Jesus came to reveal God the truth. In John chapter 1, it says that the word Jesus became flesh and dwelled among us. We've seen his glory, the glory as of the only son from the father. And what is he full of? Grace and truth. The same things God said to Moses. Jesus refers to the Holy Spirit and calls him uh, the spirit of truth. And Jesus cuts right to the chase in John 14. I am the way, the truth, and the life. So father, son, and spirit are truth. There is no truth outside of God, you guys. He defines truth. He expresses truth, and he sustains truth in the world. The Hebrew word for truth from Exodus 34 actually includes the idea of faithfulness and constancy. If you're reading a different translation than the one where the last word was truth, yours might say um, faithfulness. I think faithfulness, steadfast love and faithfulness. In other translations, that's because the word incorporates both things, truth and faithfulness. So God is accurate. He is constant and he can be counted upon. That's who he is. And the purpose of the Bible is to reveal God to us. It's what Jesus came to do. And that's what this book is here for, to reveal God to us. How, who he is how he interacts with his people, and how his people have interacted with him over many generations. We have really good examples to follow. We have really bad examples to avoid. (laughs) We have examples of people experiencing the miraculous favor of God. And we have examples of people groaning under oppression for many years. There are births, deaths, feasts, famine, And through it all, what we see is the kindness, compassion, patience, and faithfulness of God. 
don't think I have a slide for this. No. So this is my big point. So every poetic metaphor, every genealogical detail, every Levitical regulation has meaning (laughs) if we take it within the context of the whole. I'll say it one more time because I thought it was pretty good, right? (laughs) So did Justin. Thank you. Every poetic metaphor, every genealogical detail, every Levitical regulation has meaning if we take it within the context of the whole and really take it on its own terms. Psalm 119, 160 says, the sum of your word is truth. Good job, Bill. Thanks. (laughs) All of these questions are valid, by the way. Uh, All of these questions have had centuries and centuries of really smart people struggle with. All of these questions have many libraries full of books written to answer them, and you should read a few of them. But mostly, you should ponder the questions. You should pray through these questions. You should keep seeking an answer until your heart is satisfied, because in five minutes, we can't say much. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Do the first five books of the Old Testament apply to us? Well, the, the short answer is absolutely. Yes. Jesus said it this way. Assuredly, I say to you, heaven and earth, uh, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle, whatever a tittle may be, will by no means pass from the law till all is fulfilled. This is very clear. Um, All of the laws found in the Old Testament, but in the first five books and throughout the whole of the Old Testament, uh, are still in place for a reason. And now understand, Jesus said until they're fulfilled. So any of the laws in the Old Testament that are mentioned in the New Testament as being specifically or categorically fulfilled through the life and sacrifice on the cross, they're fulfilled. Okay? All right? And so the big, big, easy example there is, you know, we don't sacrifice animals. Aren't you happy about that? Okay? Why don't we sacrifice animals when so much of the Old Testament was all about killing cows? All right? Because Jesus was, all of that pointed forward to the Messiah who would come. And it says clearly that the blood of a goat, the blood of a bull, does not have the power to forgive a person. It took a person's blood, and the person had to be sinless, uh, uh, without blemish. And that person was Jesus. And once his blood was shed, that system was done. All right? So anything specifically or categorically... Dietary laws are not specifically named one by one, but is very clearly throughout the New Testament, they are is specific, is categorically addressed that, you know, everything's clean to those who are, uh, are clean, uh, you know, and so we can eat, we can eat bacon. Hallelujah. Glory. Hallelujah. Thank you, Jesus. <clears throat> All right. But it's important that we understand that all of the laws of the Old Testament, even though they are fulfilled or categorically no longer binding 
in the way they were to the Old Testament believers still have uh, lessons, okay? They have principles um, and significance for Christ followers that we need to learn the lesson to. And you need to interpret those Old Testament principles through the lens of being in Christ. So, for example, it was forbidden in the Old Testament to touch someone like a leper because they were susceptible to catching the disease, the the uncleanness, right? But Jesus came on the scene and he touched lepers. He touched dead people. He touched uh, sick people. Why? Because he was greater than the sickness. He was greater than death itself. And so uh, uh, the death, the sickness, the leprosy didn't make him unclean. His cleanness cleansed the ones he touched. All right. But listen, we, if you are a Christ follower, are in Christ. You are the body of Christ in the world today. And so as you are walking in obedience and filled with the Spirit of Christ, you have that same power. And so you need to look at those Old Testament uh, laws and, 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 and regulations and say, well, how would that be fulfilled as a Christ follower? First, so in any one of the laws, and as you read the Old Testament, you say, is this addressed in the New Testament in any way? And so look, do some study. Ask some uh, people that are smarter than you and see if they're referenced. And many, many, many of them are either specifically or in a category. And then ask, well, what is the lesson or principle that we should apply as a Christ follower? How would it look as a Christian to, uh, to demonstrate the same ethical question that's being uh, presented or moral question? Uh, uh, Paul uh, refers to, you know, the Bible, Old Testament says, don't muzzle the ox uh, that's uh, treading the grain. And he says, God wasn't concerned about the ox, okay? It was about the laborers being able to eat uh, from the produce of the labor that they were doing, and ministers are able to receive uh, financial compensation for preaching the gospel, okay? That's a great way to, and there's many, many, many examples in the New Testament of taking this obscure Old Testament law and applying it in a New Testament framework. You know what it takes? It takes a little study. It takes a little uh, investigation. And uh, what you need to do then is not ignore. It doesn't give you the, uh, uh, the New Testament doesn't say, oh, I don't have to worry about all that stuff. No, you do. Because it all still applies. But you can't um, uh, fall back into a form of legalism or pre-Christ covenantal or cultural demands which in and of themselves actually despise or undermine the fullness of what Christ accomplished. Okay? And so a lot of people, we can, we can learn many great things from the cultural 
things of the Old Testament people and all of those laws. But if we begin to practice some of them inappropriately, we can actually become, as the New Testament says, of some of those who were teaching, we become enemies of the cross. Does this make sense? And so, so fulfill those laws, those commandments, and those principles as a Christ follower. Good. Thank you. That's okay. Okay. This is the last question we have time for today. It says, why doesn't God always heal or answer every prayer despite his promises to do so in John, James, and 1 John? So, good question. Really good question. It sent me into a lot of study this week, and I could keep going for a very long time. So great question. Um, Like all of these, we could spend a lot of time on it. We're going to spend a few minutes, um, but I do want to point you to the month of May. We're actually going to do a three-week series on prayer at that point. I'm looking forward to it. It'll be great. So maybe we'll come back around to things related to this question at that point. Um, this is a weighty question. Like some of the others this morning, there are people who have left the faith over disappointment attached to it. So I just want to recognize that we don't take it lightly. Um, I'll treat it the best I can this morning, but, um, with that in mind. Okay. This question is likely rooted in a couple of verses like these. John 14, 14, Jesus said this, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. In James 5, verses 14 and 15, it says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord, and the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. A couple examples that this question is rooted in. On the surface, these verses alone seem like airtight promises that God will do the thing we ask him to do, heal the person we ask him to heal. And it is actually 100% true that God has both the power and the desire to heal. That's really important. God has the power to heal and the desire to heal. He's called the compassionate and gracious God. That's like the third time I've mentioned that today. It's important. (laughs) The Gospels are full of examples of Jesus miraculously healing deaf ears, blind eyes, paralyzed legs, and so many other body parts and (laughs) conditions, right? It's everywhere. But as we start to look across Scripture to try to get a full, remember, let Scripture speak on its own terms and let it all speak to every issue, right? There are lots of examples of people not being healed in the Bible. And so I'm going to throw a few out there as we sort of get a balanced approach to this question. Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 12 says he asked three times for the thorn in his flesh to be removed. Maybe it's figurative, but maybe it's a physical condition that he asked three times to be healed from. And God said, my grace is sufficient for you. And he was not healed from that. Paul writes to Timothy Drink something, Timothy, for your stomach problems and your frequent ailments. That's a quote from the uh, version of the Bible I read, frequent ailments. So 1 Timothy 5.23, Timothy has ongoing issues, health issues. 
Um, Paul leaves a guy named Trophimus behind in a city because he's not well enough to travel with Paul to the next place. So you either have to, this is uh, 2 Timothy 4.20, for those of you writing these down to look them up later. Trophimus, either Paul didn't pray for him, that seems odd, or Paul prayed for him and he still wasn't well enough to travel yet. So take that on board. Uh, Jesus in John chapter 5 goes to the pool of Bethesda and heals only one person. This is a pool where many people gathered all the time waiting for the waters to be stirred to get in and be healed. So presumably there were many people available to heal, but Jesus healed only one. And then um, in the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 32, Jacob wrestles with God and God pulls his hip out of socket. What does that mean in light of this topic, right? Jesus had a dear friend, Lazarus, that he raises from the dead, who died again one day. Every person in human history died except Enoch and Elijah are the ones I can think of in the Bible that somehow God surpassed, took them around death <laughs> to his arms. Um, everyone else died and each of us will die too, unless the Lord returns first. So presumably all those people were never prayed for, or some of those prayers were not answered according to Please let them not die now, Lord. Okay, so we're taking all these things on board. Now, when Jesus taught us to pray, here's what he started with. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. And then Jesus models the perfect example of that in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, Father, he's facing crucifixion the next day and he knows it. A very unpleasant way to die understatement of the morning <laughs> a very very painful way to die it's torture and death he's facing that and he knows it and he prays this father if you're willing remove this cup from me he's sweating like blood this is serious he's in the throes of it and he says father if you're willing remove this cup from me nevertheless not my will but yours be done He's the perfect model of what he taught us on how to pray. Jesus teaches us to pray in submission to God's will, ready to accept his will, even in the face of suffering. That's what that garden teaches us. We're ready to accept God's will as we pray, even in the face of suffering. And simultaneously, Jesus teaches us to come to him with bold, confident faith, right? like the woman who had been bleeding for 12 years that just knew if she could touch the garment of Jesus, she would be healed. And she was. And Jesus says to her, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. So <laughs> we start to gather a broader picture to go with the two verses we started with, don't we? Of what scripture on the whole says, what Jesus says, who God is, to come to a question like this. <clears throat> and if we're willing to see it, Scripture as a whole is in harmony on an answer to this question, on its teachings about prayer and healing. There is a harmony there. And here's how I'm going to sum it up. Pray! 
pray. <laughs> I don't want to skip. Pray is what scripture teaches us and what Jesus teaches us. Be full of confident faith and submit to God's will. Accepting the results of his sovereign decision in every circumstance. That's pretty deep <laughs> as you go apply it to every situation, right? Pray, be full of confident faith and submit to God's will. Accepting the results of his sovereign decision in every circumstance. Mary why don't you come and wrap it up? Thank you so much. Those were well answered. We have a lot to think about, a lot to pray about. But let's just go ahead and we'd like to spend a few minutes in response, in prayer, and let our hearts respond to what we heard. So let's do that right now. And maybe we'll just respond to this last one, most fresh in our head, okay? Join with me in prayer. Father, <clears throat> We all have ailments. We all have um, difficulties that we may or may not have prayed for, for you to heal, for you to intervene. But we just come now to you this morning according to this truth, according to this teaching, that we can be fully confident, faithfully asking you, would you heal? Would you take this cup from us? Whatever it might be. So right now, just pray and ask God for the thing that is in your heart, by faith, ask for. But Lord, we submit it to your will. Not our will, but yours be done, God. And we just repent if we've been coming to you with the prayer request according to our will, a very specific demand of how something should be uh, rectified. Lord, we come honestly, but we say your will be done. And we will yield to that. Trusting you, Jesus. pray a blessing over each and every one here. The, the truths that were shared from your word this morning, we've got a lot to think about. May, may these scriptures and these perspectives just percolate into our be, being and settle in and really transform us into a, a truer image of Jesus. So I just bless each one in their further study in these questions as well and we look forward to continue learning and growing together as a church family in jesus name amen